have that gut feeling something just wasn't right for a student or maybe it's missed a few classes or they're starting to become late more often or maybe you even suspect something maybe anxiety or they're not feeling well kind of down and all of these are risk factors that can help predict student absenteeism. Now, knowing these early indicators can help you as an educator connect the dots, which is what we're talking about this week with your hosts, Shelly, Steve, and me, Stan. At Circle Forum, we respectfully acknowledge that the land on which we gather, work, learn, and live daily are the treaty and traditional territory of Indigenous people. We are grateful for our relationship with the First Nations of this territory, for their care for and teachings about the land, the water, and all our relations. As a settler or organization, we continue our journey to strengthen our understanding of our relationships with Indigenous people, communities, and nations, and of how to move forward together in a good way. We acknowledge the contributions and accomplishments of all Indigenous people across Turtle Island, current and throughout history. Thanks very much for that, Shelley. Really appreciate that land acknowledgement and that setting the context for our conversations. And today we're gonna to be talking about risk factors actually, and ways that you can tell whether someone, a student in particular, is at risk of being chronically absent. Now, chronically absent means that you're missing more than 10% and in COVID times, it doesn't take much to hit that marker, believe me. You just have to be told to stay home for two weeks and you've hit that magic number already. But there are a number of uh, risk factors that are part of our work together with school boards that really help to identify students early, whether they're younger or older. The earlier you can identify kids that are at risk of chronic absenteeism, the better. And I'll just read through the 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 five major ones, and then we can get into a conversation. But the, the research shows us that these are basically the five basic clusters that indicate there's a risk factor for chronic absenteeism. One is mobility. Two is the previous history of absenteeism. Three is behaviors. Four is student achievement. And five is health. So where do you want to start? Door number one, door number two, door number three, door number four, or door number five? Well, we could start at any one of them. They're all good topics. The, the one that jumped out at me first was that previous history of absenteeism, because I think it relates not just to that student, but also siblings, family. It, it's all part of the history of absenteeism or school attendance of that student and the family that they might come from. So to me, the, it, sort of, it sort of flows from them as an individual to also with the rest of the people in their family. And I, you know, I look at families that I've dealt with over the years as a principal, um, you know, one student, you know, is chronically absent and along comes the younger brother or sister and they, they start to see the same pattern. And you wonder what's the family dynamic that's feeding into this? What's, what has happened with the family that absenteeism has become such a strong um, factor in their, in their lives and what's their opinion of school and how do they see school and how do they view absenteeism? Is it, do they view absenteeism as a real issue for them or not? So there's so many variables that, that factor into that. So, you know, we track the days they're there and the days they're not, 
And when we see a certain number of days, we say, okay, here's a risk factor. But there's so many variables that that add that feed into that absenteeism number that we really have to dive deeper and dig deeper into what those numbers mean. But you're right, you know, a student who's been absent, chronically absent in, you know, the early years is more likely to be chronically absent in the later years, but also family members too. And we've seen that, you know, I don't know if studies have been done. I can sort of, my own observations over the years as a principal, uh, if one child in the family is chronically absent, usually there's an absenteeism problem with other members of the family too. And I'm not sure the exact reasons for that, but I know that there's a lot of work and research that could be done there. What I like about what you're saying, Steve, is that you were already listing off a bunch of questions that you were wondering about. It's really easy to move to judgment um, about why somebody might be chronically late or and in a family, oh, here they come again. There's the next one, next one that's going to be that. And then we move into judgment and blame. And then we stop asking those questions and stop being curious in a positive way about what might be happening for them. It may not be anything that we can support, or it could be an easy, easy fix. But if we're not open to that, then, then we're not even going to, to look for that or offer that opening to the family to explore mm -hmm. that. And I think it's interesting, too, that if we're asking the wrong questions here and communicating the wrong questions to the parents, we're going to put them on the compass of shame. Because what have I not done as a parent that you're saying is contributing to this so we could get the... Uh, you know, the uh, attack others uh, back at us, we could also get just the complete withdrawal. That is, um, I see your number on my call display, and I'm simply not going to answer. I was going to say, um, when I think about uh, the restorative, restorative practices, and understanding impact, and we're presuming that this parent, if we're talking younger children, or this student, would understand the impact of coming, what's five minutes? What's five minutes late? What does that do? Um, and if they don't understand the impact of that, and we're assuming they know what that does and how that could set the student behind or disrupt what's happening in the classroom, then that's where we can easily move into um, judgment and not asking and moving into discipline rather than moving into supporting that behavior to not happen. Uh, so the, the idea of understanding impact of behavior, if we even start there to share with the family in a true sharing way, what the impact of being five minutes late, 10 minutes late every day for the literacy block, what impact that might have on their student or their child. Yeah, I was gonna say, so it, it's one thing to collect the data on absenteeism. It, the next step, of course, is how do we react to that? What, what are the steps that we take? And, and Shelly, you're talking about the, you know, taking those steps of working with the family to come to an understanding of what the effects are of the absenteeism. You know, traditionally it's been a disciplinary approach. And we know that that doesn't work. We know just in you know general terms, discipline have, coming down hard and heavy on somebody for something that they may not even have control over is not going to have any effect. Um, but I think of well, all they the, have an effect, but not the one you're. Well, with. it's not the one you want exactly. So it may just <laughs> right, chase them, right. chase them further. Um, so it, it, you know, once we gather this data and we look at all the factors and we realize that you know there's maybe there's things beyond the control of the student or the family or whatever. How do we then proceed to manage that? And really, it's like you know, it's almost a case by case basis. It's going to be different. Every case is going to be subtly different in terms of the factors that are affecting that student coming to school or not. But I know in the past, it's always been punitive, and we can we can probably list off a million different just weird things that we used to do, like the old thing of suspending a kid for a day because they were absent for a day. 
believe it or not, people did that. Um, you know, giving kids detentions because they're late when we know darn well that it's not even their fault they're late because, you know, the bus was late or their parents dropped them off or whatever. Um, you know, just dumb things that we've done over the years that we've often thought, well, that's going to work. If we just punish these kids, that's going to work. Conversely, we've tried the proactive pieces. We're going to give out perfect attendance awards. Let's give out awards to kids who have perfect attendance. And we know for some kids, this, that's not even within the realm of their possibility. And so right away, some kids look at that and go, well, I'm never going to get one of those. So it doesn't matter. I'm out after day two, I'm out of that, that race. So why, why do I even try? So those things really don't have an, any kind of an effect on attendance uh, for kids coming to school. We know that doesn't work. So. so what kinds of things have you observed, for example, in terms of tardiness? Uh, Steve, I think you had a story about tardiness and how that impacted student attendance too. Well, it, it's a story. There's a couple of different levels of this story from a teacher who told me about this, uh, a teacher who does a lot of supply teaching and told me that they were in a school and the way they dealt with tardiness was, you know, you send a kid to the office. They show up late. If they don't have a late slip, you send them to the office to get a late slip. And, you know, we know that that, again, just means the kids out of class even longer. I mean, if the goal is for them to be in class learning and they show up five or seven minutes late and then you send them down to the office and they're another five or seven minutes at the office getting the late slip and then they come back. Now they're 15, 20 minutes they've missed of class time. So how has that helped? I think the, the idea is that we're going to inconvenience that kid or make them realize they're late. But I think what it does also is it, it, it puts the kid on, you know, on a pedestal in front of the class when they would show up late. So this, the same teacher was telling me this story also related to the fact when they used to be a student in high school and was always late for the first period class because came from, you know, playing basketball on the school team and they had early morning practices and invariably just couldn't get to class, first period class on time was sent to the office to get a late sub. So in a busy high school, would sit there for 20, 25, 30 minutes waiting for their turn to get their late sub. By the time they got to class, they'd missed the entire class. And this happened, you know, every second day for, for weeks on end to the point where that's this teacher who was a student at the time said, what's my point of even going? If I know I'm going to be five or seven minutes late for class, I'm not even going anymore because I'm going to waste all my time sitting at the office I'll just get an, you know, an absent for that and for that day and I'll get the notes from somebody else. And so the, the student basically gave up because of this bureaucratic structure that they created for saying that kids are late for class. And the whole reason the kids were late for class is because they were on a school team and practices ran late. So, you know, coach, talk to the teacher, teacher, talk to the coach to see if we can come to an agreement that, you know, so-and-so shows up five minutes late, that's no big deal but that could never happen. So it just shows you those little things that we think will fix tardiness actually contribute to absenteeism later on. And this is an example of that. I would add suspensions also add to the problem of absenteeism because you're basically adding to the number of days that somebody's missed. Yeah. And so I think it's really important too, to keep in mind that uh, chronic absenteeism data includes all absences from school, whether they're excused or unexcused and suspensions. Mm -hmm. So you get the total number and that's the thing that you need to, um, you know, need to be looking at. And what about um, an indicator in terms of student achievement? The two big ones that keep coming up in the research all the time are declines in literacy or numeracy, like English marks or math marks. What kinds of things have you noticed uh, with that as an indicator? 
Well, so you use the word declines, which means that they were at a level at some point in time and they're starting to decline. So we've always said as teachers, you know, to other, to the teachers and as principals, we'd say to the teachers, if you notice a, a change in a student's academic achievement, maybe over a, a course of a few days or a few weeks, that might be an indicator that something is going on at home. There could be something going on in that student's life. You know, if a student and, you know, we'll say has been a straight A student for years on end and is suddenly struggling to get C's and D's or an incomplete subject, something's happened. And that's an indicator that we need to start asking some questions of somebody to find out what's the change. So when we talk about declines in literacy and numeracy rates, yes, literacy and numeracy are important, but it's amazing how you'll see the declines in every other subject too. You know, even phys ed, a kid who's a great athlete loves being in phys ed and doing all sorts of stuff suddenly is showing up. I haven't got my, my shoes here today. Oh, I haven't got a change of clothes, whatever. It doesn't matter what the subject, when you see a change in their performance or their attitude or work submission, then that's an indicator that something's going on. And, you know, again, back to what we're saying, how you deal with that will then determine whether that child goes through that, rides out that spell, or just suddenly decides, you know, it's not worth coming to school anymore. They're just, they're giving me a hassle. I'm not coming to school about it anymore. And so now we've got an absenteeism problem and we don't even really know what's caused it, but the, the marks are an indicator for school performance as an indicator. So I don't, although literacy and math are important and literacy and numeracy are important, I say all subjects and all school performance is, a, is an indicator of a change that we need to think about. Research, however, says that it's the literacy and numeracy scores that we have to watch most particularly. And what, what I like about this list then is that, let's say that's something you notice as a teacher, often the question is, so now what am I going to do about this? Who am I going to tell? And my suggestion would be, this is your way in to say, okay, I'm noticing in my math class that the marks are really dropping off or in my phys ed class that uh, the students no longer, uh, you know, performing or on my team that they've just dropped off. Let me take a look at this list to see if there's anything else going on. Right. And now I can look at these risk factors in terms of, you know, has, has the person moved? Is there a history of absenteeism? Are there other behaviors? What about health? I mean, it's, you can come into this particular list from any any particular yeah. point. I'll, right? I'll be, I'll be, I'll be my cynical side and say, well, literacy and numeracy are the the, the ones that they track because they're the only yes. ones they track. So yes. of course they're going to okay. relate everything to literacy and numeracy. No, I don't. That, I, I haven't seen many reports lately where they track, you know, history and geography and and music. But any subject to me is an indicator of a change that may be leading to an issue of of attendance. But um, yeah, literacy yeah. and numeracy scores, you're right, because we track those in grade three yeah. and six yeah. and nine, and yeah. we can yeah. track them. We can pull, you know, with computers now, and it's all a lovely thing. We can pull attendance, we can pull data from any grade at any time on any student in Ontario if we want to. And we can watch a decline in literacy scores from grade two to grade three, even mm-hmm. though they don't do EQL to grade three. A student could be performing extremely well in grade one and partway through grade two, and all of a sudden they start to drop off at the end of grade two. Before they even get to the grade three EQAO test, we see a decline in their literacy scores or their math scores. So, you know, I, I agree that those are important factors because those are the ones that people have made important factors. But, um, you know, oh, I, I like the cynical side of you because I, I don't disagree with you at all. No, um, oh, good. It, no, I don't. I don't. Because, loves company. <laughs> there we go. But c- because it's 
it's what people are measuring yeah. and it's what people are researching that can be really, really helpful. So what researchers have said is here's a little, here's a little flag post because we've researched this. It doesn't mean that there aren't others. And our experience, basically, our lived experience says we can pick that up in geography, we can pick that up in phys ed, we yeah. can pick that up in in culinary arts. Uh, so just watch for that change. Yeah. Something that we did in, I mean, elementary school has an advantage over secondary school in that whole child approach in that, um, you know, most elementary schools are obviously smaller. They have, you know, a smaller group of teachers would be looking after any particular child. And if one teacher says, you know what, I've noticed student A is really having a tough time getting their history stuff done. Like everything's coming in late. They're showing up late for class. Has anybody else noticed that? And you can have that quick conversation, those hallway conversations. And all of a sudden, the math teacher and the homeroom teacher, yeah, I've noticed that too. And now we're all starting to see the same thing. You don't see that as much in high school because, you know, the departments are separated. The teachers don't necessarily cross paths that much. And so if a kid starts to decline in one subject, the teachers in the other subjects might not necessarily know that because they don't necessarily have a homeroom teacher that's responsible for writing those learning skills on the report card. So it is different in the two panels. And yet, you know, if teachers could get together and talk about those high needs kids, you know, the staff meeting, anybody got any kids that are coming? Yeah. Johnny doesn't seem to be coming to class very much. Hey, I've noticed that too. Now we can all have a discussion about Johnny and why he's not coming to class. It sounds like a classic connecting the dots kind of situation, yeah. right? Like, I mean, our work in threat assessment, part of what we're trying to do is to connect agency to agency, what kind of information we have and to connect the dots to say, look, this is an individual who's at risk of committing a violent act or uh, harming themselves. And we're kind of doing the same sort of thing with this, that we're looking at, these are disparate indicators that are often kept separate from each other. And what we're trying to do with this early indicators list, and maybe it needs to be a connect the dots list. I don't know, we can change the name of it, but is to to gather these bits of information so that you can connect the dots and get the whole picture of what's going on in order that you can connect this person with a trusted caring adult and get more resources from your school or your school district. And if need be, if the if it's a really severe concern that you have based on these risk factors, we can't do this by ourselves as a school board. We need to get other resources involved because part of what's going on is beyond, but we have to look for those kinds of things first. And what about health then? Like how, how have you seen or observed health as an indicator of absenteeism or concern for chronic absenteeism? Because if kids are sick a lot, if they've got poor health, they're going to start missing a lot more school. COVID aside, where kids have to self-isolate and all those things, but you know, pre-COVID, post-COVID, whatever, there are some students that tend to miss a lot more days being off for illness than other students. And why is that? Is it because they truly are sick more? Is it because of their home environment? Do they have um, you know, some chronic issues with their own personal health that they have difficulty controlling, whether it's, you know, allergies in the spring and the in the fall? Is it, you know, all those kind of things? Or do they have a parent who just keeps them home every time there's a sniffle just to be safe? You know, there's all sorts of questions around health, but we do know that health can play a big factor in kids being away from school. And, and sometimes it's all legitimate health, you know, risks. I mean, some kids are very sickly and they have all sorts of issues that need to be dealt with. They're going to miss a lot of school because of their health. When we look at the health section, other than, you know, dental issues or 
uh, you know, have a cold or flu. When we look at the other ones around mental health, trauma, and adverse childhood experiences, those are often things that are not looked at until after we're deep in, and um, there's a lot of school time that's been missed. And these things ha- are are either at play or have been at play, and uh, have been have been missed as a, as an indicator that we may have been able to get into having uh, support earlier if we realized that this was now part of what might be going on for their uh, attendance issues. Yeah, they don't come forth as, as clearly as, you know, calling in because they've got the flu. Or families will cover up those ones by just excusing their child and saying he's not feeling well today or is a stomach issue when we're really, we're talking about anxiety because now we've had an upset stomach for 10 days in a row, right? Um, With no uh, doctor, there's no physical uh, need uh, reason for that. We know particularly those that are around mental health or trauma connections that the more they stay away, um, it becomes more and more difficult to get back certainly on their own and often you know depending how long it's been left to get even back in with very concentrated intervention is very difficult to do Mm -hmm. the thing that i wanted to just add here is that i'm not a clinical psychologist i'm not someone who can diagnose mental health issues and so it's important to note that these are suspected so if you as an educator suspect that's good enough to be a way into this list because I suspect that the student is dealing with some type of depressive episode. I don't know if it's not, don't wait until it's diagnosed as clinical depression. If you have the suspicion that brings you into this list. Um, If you suspect that there's some type of trauma, again, you don't have to know for sure. And you don't have to know all the details, but you can start to initiate this kind of a checklist to say, are there other resources that we need to bring on in on this? Because candidly, as a classroom teacher, I can't deal with all the trauma stuff that's going on. I need some help with that. As we kind of wrap this up, what's one practice, one thing that you would say, here's a suggestion for a practical thing that you can do based on what we've talked about today? Well, I think the first one would be know that you can do something that there's so many entry points that as a classroom teacher, just saying good morning, just acknowledging that somebody's there, making sure that their environment is welcoming to them. No, you can't treat them for their trauma history, but that what you can do is so powerful and it, you don't have to look very far to hear those powerful stories that kids will tell you about their, the teacher that made a difference for them. So know that you can make a difference with very small actions on your part. And I would, I would agree with that and take it one step further and know that you can make a difference, but know that you can also talk to other people. So if you have a suspicion that there's something, plan your response, go and talk to other people, get a sense, make sure it's not just my response, but I've talked to all your other students, other teachers, and we're all kind of getting a sense. So let's talk to some people and say, how, how are we going to approach this? So plan your response in a way. And it may come back to you as the homeroom teacher saying, okay, it's all going to come back to me. That's fine. But I want to know what everybody else is thinking too. And here's how I think we should go into it. But somebody else said, well, why don't you try it this way? Okay. That sounds like a better way. And so don't just say, you know what? I think I'm going to call them. That's okay. But maybe talk to a few other people first and really plan that response so we can go forward almost as a collective. Do I get one more? 
Yeah, it's, uh, you know, to go back to restorative practices and it's the relationship base, right? So that you've created that, you've connected, you've made a relationship connection with the child and or the family, depending on age, so that when you need to have some of these conversations, that's not a, that's not a odd phone call to make, to say that I, I notice a change in your, in your child, because you've already built a relationship. So then it comes across as a caring response that I'm worried because he's not responding in class anymore. How did you know that that's what I was going to say? My goodness. Sorry. Are you ever intuitive, restoratively intuitive, Shelly? Yes, so there, are the, there you have the three. And now let's make some connections to student attendance and engagement. Um, how would you connect those with what we talked about today? Well, it, it may be their attendance and engagement. That's the first thing that clicks in your mind that there's something wrong. And so maybe they stop coming or maybe they're coming late or they're tardy for your class, or maybe they are coming and they're just not doing anything. They're just not engaged in, in, when they used to be. So it could be that change that really gets you to start thinking something's going on and now we have to look at it, but it may not be. I mean, they may be coming, but you see the engagement dropping off. And so the attendance is okay, but the engagement's not there. Something's going on again. It's that gut feeling. I, something's not right here with this child. I, I got to do something. What do I do? And so how does it affect attendance? I mean, ultimately, if you notice them not, a, not engaged, not engaged, and then all of a sudden you do nothing, and all of a sudden they're not coming to school because you didn't intervene when you had a gut feeling that maybe you should, there's, the pro there's where the attendance starts to become a problem. And I think to have a tool like this that have your early indicators on there, it gives you somewhere to go and go, okay, I am noticing that, and that is linked to some other pieces, and it gives you, it gives you a bit of a roadmap to start to talk to some of the other teachers or a parent or a student just to, to be curious and, and ask what else might be going on for them. The better you know your students and their families, the more likely you are to notice some kind of a change. It's based on the relationship that you have with them. And know too, that there's something you can do about it. You can help other educators in your school building, in your district, connect the dots, and then set up appropriate responses. If you're interested in talking to us some more about early indicators and interventions with absenteeism, drop us an email to stan at restorative.ca and let's keep the conversation going.